Hello and welcome to a brand new podcast dedicated to role-playing games, war games, and adventure board games. My name's Tom, and this podcast is called Two Shelves of Gaming. So, why two shelves of gaming? Well, that's because my games are on two shelves, and I couldn't think of anything else more imaginative or or cosmic or, or subversive. It's literally how my games are. They're on two shelves. There we go. I'm choosing to do a podcast because, for me, role-playing games are about theater of the mind, imagination, and I can't be bothered doing a video. Basically, I would like to do a video at some point, but to get all the camera angles and to change the shots is a bit more than I can do right now. And rather than set up uh, one camera or my iPhone just pointed at my face for an hour, not only would that be distressing for viewers, that might be incredibly boring. So you'll just have to do with the sounds of my voice. Hopefully it's not too whiny or nasal or won't put you to sleep or anything like that. I am a middle-aged gentleman, shall we say, and I have been gaming for pretty much 40 years. I first started gaming in 1982, I think I can pinpoint it. I was at school, I turned around in a recess one day, I saw a bunch of uh, my classmates playing this game, I took a closer look, there was this cool map, they were rolling all this weird dice, and there were these amazing descriptions of combat, and I went, cool, I I gotta have that game. In that moment, my kind of love of tabletop gaming was crystallized, was born, was, was, was sent on its path. So that, that's how things started for me. So why am I choosing to do this now? Well, as you probably know, we're in the midst of a pandemic and there's a lot to feel pretty glum about, let's be honest. One of the things I've been doing to take my mind off this, uh, this thing that is, is, is all over the place, this, this COVID situation, is gaming. Gaming is a great distraction. I've been setting up mostly my war games so far. Because I think uh, even though I'm on my own, I think you can solo war games quite easily. It's easy to play by yourself. It's easy to play against yourself. You know, uh, regardless of the rule system or the figures or whatever whatever else you've got, you can set up your army at one end of the war game table and the other army at the other end, and you can just move forward. And then, after a certain range, the other guy starts firing at you. Or you can have really simple orders that say, when I cross the bridge, the enemy unit A starts to move. It's it's pretty straightforward. Which brings me on to what I would like this episode of the Two Shelves of Gaming podcast to be about. I would like to explore solo role-playing, solo role-playing games. I would like to see whether it's something you can do on your own with an existing rule set, if you can apply some kind of solo mechanic into that gaming system or overlay uh, solo role-playing onto onto any system. Now, for me, solo role-playing reminds me of back in the 80s when I first discovered fighting fantasy, and I I absolutely loved them. I could not get enough of fighting fantasy books. I remember the kind of Halysian days of the first few of those books coming out, Warlock of Firetop Mountain, City of Thieves, Forest of Doom, Citadel of Chaos. Even though I, I have since learned that that concept was not new, I believe it might have been pioneered or, or made really great by um, the Tunnels and Trolls team. For me, it was fighting fantasy that really got me into solo gaming because when I first got into gaming, although, as I said, there was a, there was a group at school who did it, it, it was quite, a, quite an isolated place in many ways when I first became a role player. I first started role playing on the island of Trinidad in the Caribbean, my mother is from the Caribbean, and from the island, and I lived there for a few years back in the 1980s. 
And because of the way the island is laid out, because of um, public transport being a bit ropey, because of it not being such a good idea for kids to go around on their own, you know, a, a lot of the time I was left to my own devices. You know, I couldn't just wander down to my, my, my buddy's house because they might have lived miles away in, in the next valley. Uh, and getting the local bus wasn't an option for various reasons. So uh, fighting fantasy kind of really, really scratched an itch, shall we say. I was able to get hold of them. They started selling them in Trinidad, which was great. Um, and also whenever I went on holiday back to the UK, I would uh, get what I could, which included, of course, role-playing games, uh, Dungeons and Dragons. And one of the other ways I would uh, solo role-play would be to uh, just go through the, the old AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide. And there would be that um, those random tables. You just roll tables to make up a dungeon. You know, that, that was entertainment enough. You know, even though the, the dungeon might be totally a random jumble of intersections and rooms. And in one room there might be 20 orcs. And in the one next door there might be two red dragons. And, you know, it made no sense. But I, I enjoyed it. And on top of that, I, I just used to like rolling characters on my own. You know, and I would say, okay, I'm going to roll this character. And maybe when I do meet up with my friends, which we did do, you know, either at school or, or we'd have like a special gaming day that would be set up. You know, I'd have something to take to it. Or even if I didn't, I could just kind of entertain myself with with rolling up characters. Skip forward to when I went to university. I played a, played a really good few campaigns at university. I had a really good time at university. And then, drifting further into the 90s, things kind of trailed off. They, they went into what I've heard many gamers call the deep freeze. You know, many... You, probably a lot of gamers are of the same age demographic as me, generally speaking. So there was that kind of danger point after university or you'd, you'd started your job and other adult pursuits come into your life. And, you know, maybe for whatever reason, gaming is not one of those. And so gaming just drifted off for me. But luckily, in the early noughties, I started work at a, at a, a new place of work. And a couple of my colleagues, we just discovered we were into gaming ourselves. We, we had the same kind of interest in war games and role-playing games. So we started gaming for uh, a good few solid years. You know, we'd meet up on certain days after, after work, find an abandoned room, play a war game, play a game of D&D uh, &D or, or Traveller or whatever else system we had. And that was great. Got some really good years of solid gaming out of that. Unfortunately, I then spoiled it all by getting a job in another part of the country, another, another part of the UK, so it was impossible to meet anymore. You know, sometimes we'd meet up and go to conventions at weekends or stuff like that, but that was the end of, end of me doing, doing regular game meetings. And then I got a job working in the Netherlands, which is where I'm coming to you from now. I'm coming to you from the city of The Hague on the Dutch coastline between Rotterdam and Amsterdam. While there are gamers here, I always found it hard to find a gaming group that would fit into my schedule or their schedule. The first, the first time I kind of looked around for gamers, and you know, there are quite a few gaming groups uh, in The Hague and in the Netherlands. The Netherlands is definitely a gaming country. The first group I came into contact with, they wanted, uh, I think they were looking to meet up every other or every Sunday for five hours, and I, and I, I just couldn't do that. That's, that's just too much time for me. Uh, then I met some friends or some 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 parents of children who went to my daughter's school, if, if you can follow that. And they were gamers too, and it was great that we'd kind of found each other. Oh, great, another gamer. Cool. Let, 
let's try and do something. Um, unfortunately, that didn't happen either because they because they all worked at the school when they kind of clocked off at half three or three o'clock or whatever it is they clock off. They were all together and they, they could get a game set up because I worked somewhere else. You know, by the time I'm finished and I get there, the game's over. So that was that. So to cut a long story short, that's why the idea, the notion of solo gaming kind of interests me a great deal. You know, can I do it? You know, as I previously mentioned, doing solo wargaming is quite straightforward. Uh, last year, in in the depths of the the lockdown, I was I was just randomly setting up solo war games. I was I, I think the first one I did was I picked up some old pike and shot figures. I've got some fifteen millimeter pike and shot figures. And I got one of the rule sets I had bought from Osprey Games called The Pikeman's Lament. And I just, you know, set up a solo game, even though it's not a solo game. It solos quite easily. And I had a lot of fun with that. You know, I set up some games, had a mini campaign. It was a lot of fun. And then I did lots of Frostgrave, which is a, a, a great game, which you may or may not have heard of. Frostgrave, Wargaming in the Frozen City, I believe is the tagline is a kind of midpoint for me between war games and uh, role-playing games because in Frostgrave you have a party of adventurers called a war band which consists of a wizard, the wizard's apprentice and various hirelings like thugs, thieves, bandits, you name it and basically you go off ransacking a location, fighting monsters, gaining treasure um, and gaining experience points and although it was not written as a solo game it does solo very very well, very easily and in fact, there have been some um, some solo supplements in the Frostgrave range. And the author of that game, uh, Joseph McCullough, he has taken the idea further with his Rangers of Shadowdeep game, which is designed to be full-on solo or full-on cooperative. So kind of primed by these solo wargaming experiences, I thought to myself, hmm, what can I do with my vast collection of role-playing games that are just sitting on my shelves, my two shelves, doing nothing. I mean, I've got games that go back to to the mid '80s up until you know a few months ago. It, it it's quite a diverse range of stuff, and, and probably you know mirrors what anyone who's been gaming and collecting for for, for several decades. Wow, it's scary when I say it. Kind of mirrors what they might have also. So I said, okay, what can I do? And for a while now, I, you know, I've been researching the subject. There's a lot of great videos on YouTube showing people how they do their, their solo role-playing setup. You know, they, they use a, a contemporary rule set like Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition or, or maybe 4th or 3rd edition, I think, some of the guys I was watching. And they use, you know, a book of random encounters that's, not, that's you know, uh, system agnostic so they can have a, a wide variety of encounters about where they meet, the kind of terrain they're going through, etc., etc. They have a little uh, kind of war game setup arranged whenever there's a combat encounter. You know, they get a lot of great experience out of it. But one of the things I, I want to do with my role-playing solo attempt, experiment, whatever you will call it, I would like to give it a really small footprint because I don't have a huge amount of space. I'm lucky enough at least to have a man cave and up until maybe a few months ago my man cave was just a horrendous mass of, of, of books. Luckily I've cleaned the place out a bit and I have just enough space to, uh, to keep a, uh, a small war game or a role playing game set up one at a time. Uh, so I should just give you a visual description of where I'm coming to you from now. My wargaming books my dice tray, my voice recorder, they are set up on a low table, a long low table. At one end of the table are various 
dice, bowls of dice is the best way I can describe it, and cups of dice. Like many gamers, I have loads and loads of dice, and they just kind of spread out all over the place. Anyway, one side of the table is, is my dice, or some of my dice, and this side, where I am now, has my books. And I'm sitting on a very, very low bench that my father-in-law made for my then one-year-old daughter. So I kind of look like that kid from Charlie Brown who plays the piano. Is, is it Linus or Schroeder? I'm kind of hunched over, you know, sitting on a small bench. So to cut a long story short, I wanted to give this a very, very small footprint. Okay, so I think what I'll do now is I'll, uh, I might give you a tour Okay, let me just, there's some rustling sounds when I pick up the voice recorder. Okay, so as I said before, this podcast is called Two Shelves of Gaming. This is the first shelf. There it is, I'm knocking it to prove it exists. Theatre of the mind, like I say. Okay, I'm not going to focus on every single book, adventure module, supplement I have, because that would just take up too much time. Maybe, depending on how this uh, this podcast goes, I, I can do that. But let's just start right at the left-hand side. And I've got Dungeons and Dragons 4th edition King of the Troll Hunt Warrens. Or Troll Hunt Warrens. That was, uh, that was an adventure I got in the Liverpool, England branch of Forbidden Planet. I used to work at university, at the, one of the universities in Liverpool. And in my lunch hour, I would uh, go down to the, to the gaming stores and just see what was what. And I got that one day for pennies because it, uh, it was all battered. You know, all the packaging was ripped. So I just got it for you know, nothing. Uh, next to that, I've got my old AD&D adventure modules against the Cult of the Reptile Guard. The Lost Caverns of... I'm not even going to pronounce that. I can never pronounce that one. I've got some Gazetteers, which I really got into when I was at university. I, meant, I, I mentioned before when I was at university, I, uh, I really played some great uh, D&D campaigns with my housemates who were, who were into it also. And while I was there, I discovered, albeit a few years late, the, the, the Gazetteer range. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Gazetteer, Gazetteer. And the first one I got was the Elves of Alfheim, which was, you know, they, they were great. They were great because they expanded the, uh, the D&D Mystara or Mystara setting. So instead of your adventures being a random collection of dungeons or little patches of wilderness, you could link it up. And I found that really great. It was a bit of a a revelation, an, an epiphany, if you will. Okay, uh, after that, I've got, what's this? Rahasia. That's an old basic D&D adventure, which I got in a, a charity shop, which is a UK thing. I think the US equivalent is a thrift store. It's where you get loads of secondhand books, clothes, records, um, junk sometimes. And, uh, one, and one of the things I do a lot of my games come from uh, these secondhand slash thrift stores. And this one came from a thrift store in the uh, very picturesque city, uh, English city of Chester. I was in there one day just kind of browsing the books and I saw a huge collection of D&D stuff that had just been donated. So I just kind of snapped up a load of it. And then I quickly sent a message to my friend saying, hey, get to the get to this uh, secondhand store because they've got loads of D&D stuff. Anyway, um, some old D&D uh, rule books. Uh, there is the boxed first quest, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons first quest, the introduction to role-playing games, which which was an intro. I think I've got two copies of that. I don't know why. Like I say, whenever I see, whenever I uh, I'm, I'm in a second-hand store and I see anything role-playing, I just kind of instinctively grab it, and even if I've got more than one, it it's kind of weird. It's like that character in um, 
Mel Gibson's character in that film Conspiracy, whenever he sees a, a copy of The Catcher in the Rye, he has to buy it. That's kind of like me with role-playing games. Uh, first quest, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, with a really bizarre audio CD. Don't know if you've ever uh, if you've ever had that, but it's got a great, great for all the wrong reasons for me personally, audio CD of sound effects and people playing. And it sounds like some kind of um, amateur acting group yeah it's uh, it's entertaining but for the wrong reasons anyway anyway let's skip a for let's skip forward uh lord of the rings the role-playing adventure game the two towers again that's a second-hand store purchase i got that in a seaside town called hoylake near liverpool that's you know i need to get into that a bit more but it's it's quite it's supposed to be an introduction role-playing game or it's supposed to introduce the role play that role-playing system to the the novice and it's it must confuse the heck out of people who are novices because you are the first adventure you're presented with is is going into the the, the court of King Theoden when he's got Grima Wormtongue poisoning his mind, and then after that it's the Battle of Helm's Deep. You know, it's it's pretty heavy stuff for a for a novice um, role player. You know, it's not just like a little simple dun dungeon bash. It's it's big heavy stuff. Anyway, that's another role playing game. Okay, we now have something more modern: Star Trek Adventures. The role-playing game starter set which is a great great role-playing game uh, i think it's the that was the no it wasn't it wasn't the last role-playing game i purchased but I, I got that one and i got the uh warhammer fantasy role-play starter set as well at the same time from a, a game shop here in the hague called spellen house which is a great place and has now moved closer to the city center uh, next to that are some some game books um blood sword by David Morris and Oliver Johnson, which are great, great game books because you have the option of kind of, uh, every time there's a, a combat encounter, you can kind of draw a little map and you can move miniatures around. So it, it kind of takes the game book um, concept a bit further. Uh, I, they're quite hard as well. The first one, it was, I had to do about five times. I kept getting pasted. It was, it's pretty tricky. Uh, some more, some, okay. Some actual fighting fantasy, a couple of the sorcery books, Port of Peril and Osprey role-playing game those dark places by jonathan hicks which is an industrial role-playing game sorry industrial science fiction role-playing game think alien and the, and you've kind of got it it's very very thin book very rules light a lot of fun uh, there's some great gameplay on youtube about that and that's where this first shelf ends and i now have to go next door that's the sound of a creaky door opening I'm just bundling up all my wires as I walk into the other door. Okay, we are now in the home office, which sounds great and grand. I think me slamming that door might have caused a bit of sound distortion. Apologies. We are now in the office, which has Playmobil all over the floor. It's not my Playmobil, it's my daughter's. They they sometimes come up and play with it, and they keep them quiet. You know, when when we've got homeworking to do, if they're quiet in the background, that's great. Okay, so here is the other shelf. Listen, you see, it really is a shelf. Okay, we have got the old, starting with the old softback of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. And I remember, I remember that when it was advertised in White Dwarf. That was around the time I kind of was drifting away from White Dwarf because it was, I could tell, I could see it was moving away from roleplaying to pushing its own project, uh, product, you know, Wargaming 40k, that kind of stuff. I remember the big uh, kind of pull-out advert to say, yeah, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. I've gone through that book many times, but I've never actually played a game. 
that was one of the things I was going to try and do with those people I mentioned who worked at my um, my daughter's school. We always said, okay, let's meet up, let's play Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Never happened. Ooh, and that's me stepping on Playmobil. Got some more fighting fantasy here. I've got the advanced fighting fantasy. I've got a couple of Tunnels and Trolls books, the Corgi editions, the kind of little paperbacks, which I was uh, I was playing through a couple of weeks ago. Very good, brutal game. Dragon Warriors, the role-playing game, the Corgi books, paperbacks, and then I've got the hardback. The aha, the Out of the Pit fighting fantasy book. Now I got this, I got this in Trinidad, and it still has the price written on it: twenty-three dollars and ninety-five cents which was let me see at that time i think it was three dollars to the pound so um yeah you do you do the math actually i'm just gonna put leave that there for now i can't put it back in one-handed i'll damage it and it's a it's a sacred object almost okay a few more fighting fantasy books a dungeons and dragons box set this is this is i think this was the 20th edition oh here we go silver anniversary box set and I got this still in its shrink wrap from a Dutch secondhand store. Can you believe it? That, that was just like, whoa, of all the places. Anyway, I opened it up. I mean, I'm, I, even though it was still in its uh, shrink wrap, I'm not one of these weird collectors who puts it on some kind of plinth with a candle either side and worships it. You know, I, I like to read it. Even if I can't play, reading it kind of has its own pleasure. Yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. It's, it's, I hope I'm not being too... Um, controversial when I say it's a bit of a glorious mess because it gives you characters to play with and you know they're, they're second level characters but again if you're a novice coming into this game and you're presented with a second level character you might be thinking well what's second what's first and uh, I don't know anyway next to that Star Frontiers, RuneQuest, Traveler box set, the D&D starter set from 2014 the 50 edition starter set that is a that's a motorbike hey what can I do I don't have a professional studio. I'm just, just in my house with the noise of the great outdoors coming in. Lords of Creation by Avalon Hill, or printed by, um, I don't know who actually wrote this or designed it at the moment. Was it one of the, was it one of the uh, D&D guys, Tom Moldvay or something? I should, I should have prefaced this podcast by saying I'm not an expert on the origins of every single role-playing game ever, meant, uh, ever made. That's a casualty of coming into the game uh, coming into role-playing when I lived in Trinidad because it was quite an out-the-way place. I mean, we we had news, we were in touch with the outside world. But for me, role-playing games, I didn't know where they were coming from, who designed them, what their origins were, etc., etc. And that kind of carries forward to, to my kind of patchy knowledge of role-playing games these days. I'm sure a lot of you know a lot more about the origins of these games than I do. Anyway, Lords of Creation, which is a role-playing game of travel through time and space and that's pretty much what the front cover says or illustrates it's got like this comic book picture of a wow what is it it is some kind of <laughs> heroic figure of a man wearing a cuirass and a beret and fetching boots presenting a laser pistol with a <laughs> with a gauntlet and a dagger in his other hand while behind him a lady with some kind of helmet and ripped clothes fires a, a spell at a dragon as she steps out of a time portal and the two of them are about to enter some kind of alien environment with robots and flying saucers. So it, it's, I think it's trying to do everything, really. That was the first game I saw that didn't come with the full set of polyhedrals. I can't remember what, it, what game, it, what dice it takes, but uh, I was fascinated by the fact it only took 
a few of the polyhedral dice. It was like, wow, what's going on here? Okay, again, I'm going to put that down. I'm not going to try and shove it back in one-handed, otherwise I'll end up breaking something. Next is Sky Realms of Jerun or Jeron, which is a quite... It, that's always fascinated me because when I first saw it, I thought the artwork was just was stunning and it really kind of captured my imagination. And it's very far out stuff. I mean, the picture on the front cover of my of my boxed set is I'm not even going to try to describe it. It's just quite spectacular, I find. In fact, the guy who did all the illustrations, Miles Tevez, he has since gone on to do lots of uh, conceptual art and design for Hollywood. He did a lot. Of, he's done lots and lots of films. I think he did uh, uh, Total Recall. He did the conceptual art for that. And he, he's done loads of stuff. I think he last worked on one of the Pirates of the Caribbean films. That's, that's quite a little interesting bit of trivia. Okay, moving along swiftly now. Uh, another, <laughs> another first quest box game. Like I told you, I kind of have this thing where if I see a game in a secondhand store, I just have to buy it. Can't help myself. Uh, this is Middle Earth. Next, next to that is the Middle Earth role-playing game set in J.R.R. Tolkien's world, and that is the one that uh, Games Workshop did, which I have yet to again truly get into and play. Although I find its production a bit weird. There's all it's, it's it seems a bit quirky and odd. You know, that 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 the print is small and the pictures are kind of weird and sketchy and. I think when I first opened it and looked in, looked inside, I was quite disappointed because for me, Lord of the Rings was quite, you know, heroic and, and sweeping and, and vast and grand. And then I looked in the book and uh, looked in the box and went, oh, well, this, 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 this does not match the standards I was expecting in terms of just, just the production of the rule book. In fact, let me, uh, let me open up and see if I can elaborate on my, on my scurrilous opinion yeah it's just loads and loads of it's, it's very text heavy i think is what i'm trying to say it's very very text heavy and the pictures that break it up are a bit all over the place anyway sure there's a, a great game lying in there somewhere i will have to try and look into that one at some point okay next to that villains and vigilantes then we skip to the next section. We've got some hard, hard, hard quest, hardback rune quest books. Rune quest, fancy role playing game, the monsters book. By uh, that, that was when Games Workshop got on board. Next to that, we've got. I, I got all these books in a secondhand bookstore in Birkenhead years ago. Birkenhead is a town near to Liverpool on the River Mersey. It used to have a great bookstore at one end of town. And one day I just went in there, not expecting to find anything remotely connected to gaming. And when I went in there, I found the following four hardback books, Paranoia, Call of Cthulhu, Stormbringer, and Space 1889. That was an amazing result. That was like, that was like the stars aligning in secondhand bookshop form. Anyway, moving along, we have got, actually, this is a war game, Blood on the Streets. That is for Warhammer, it's a village pack for Warhammer, but it's kind of like a, a, a gazetteer of, of an area of the countryside. You know, it's, it gives descriptions of people and places, and there's no reason why you, you couldn't use it for um, a role-playing game. So, you know, you can, you can have an adventure set there. Okay, the uh, couple of uh, the Dungeons and & Dragons and the Dungeons & Dragons basic and expert sets from way back when. A couple of 5th edition 
books, uh, Storm King's Thunder, sorry, Storm King's Thunder, that sounded like Storm King's Fungus a bit there, and The Curse of Strahd, and the last section of our all hardback books of AD&D from back in the day, The Dungeon Master's Guide, Fiend's Folio, Monster Manual, etc, etc, aha, this is an interesting one for me, the uh, second edition Dungeon Master's Guide, which I got in a second-hand bookstore in Edinburgh, Scotland, and the and for me, the special thing about that book was when I bought it, I put it in my bag, wandered around the rest of the city because it, it's a city, Edinburgh I used to live in a long time ago, so I know it quite well. And then I got on the train to a town called North Berwick because I was staying in North Berwick. And as I was on the train, I flipped, I got the book out of my bag, flipped it open, and inside the book there was a check for £200 addressed to someone who was left in the book. And unfortunately for them, it was it was a 20-year-old check. I've no idea if you can still use a check after 20 years, but I tried to contact them, but I couldn't. So that was very uh, unusual to buy a D&D book and to find there's a check for £200 from 20 years ago in it. But I think it's still in there, actually. Maybe he'll, maybe he'll randomly knock at the door one day and say, hey, have you got my check for £200? And that's it. That is a, a whistle-stop tour of my role-playing game collection. But the game I'm going to play with is called Paleomythic. Okay, I'm back in my man cave room now, which is the warmer of the two rooms because it faces to the southeast. Wow, I was just looking out the window there and some crazy guy just sped past on the road. Um, anyway, it's warmer, it faces southeast, the sun comes in. So, Paleomythic. Paleomythic is a game that's not that old. It was uh, it's written by Graham Rose and it is published by Osprey Publishing, who is a company I have to say I've been buying I have been buying loads of stuff from in the past couple of years. I I just have been. Uh Osprey is a name I've known for many many years because being someone who would inhabit model shops, the model shops of Liverpool and Chester in England for much of his teenage years, I would always see Osprey on one of those carousels, and they, you know, they were they had very highly specific subjects. You know, if if you want to find out what kind of buttons the French Imperial Guard wore when they were in northern Spain during the Peninsular War, there'd be an Osprey book about it. So, it was great that they got into games. Anyway, Paleomythic by Graham Rowe is published by Osprey Games. So what is Paleomythic? Paleomythic is the role-playing game of stone and sorcery. Uh, that's what it says under the title. And it is a game set in a prehistoric setting. Maybe an alternative prehistoric setting might be the best way to describe it because it's a prehistoric setting where there are monsters, there are humanoid beings, there is magic, there's a kind of plane walking situation and it's called the ancient continent of Mu or Mu, if if I'm getting that right. Apologies to the author. Um, and also, it's a very rules light system, and that's one of the reasons, or that is one of the main reasons I wanted to try it out because I didn't want to be kind of bogged down by lots of different books, lots of different tables. The game works on a uh, on on a d6 dice pool system. So whenever you want to do something, you roll a varying amount of d6s to see if to see if you succeed at something. So it's not like another game where if you want to do this, you go to that table and roll that dice, or if you want to do that, you go to another table and roll another dice. It, it's quite straightforward and stripped back. So 
how does it work? Well, when you create a character, your character consists of talents and traits. So a talent is kind of like, it's kind of like a character class in another game. We'll come to that soon. And your traits are your abilities. Now, unlike other games, when you get set abilities and you roll scores next to them, in this game, you get a, a varying number of traits. So you can completely randomize your character creation. And let's say, for example, you have five traits. That means anytime you want to do a test to, 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 to do something out the ordinary, something that you know might be a bit dangerous, might be a bit risky, you roll an amount of dice equal to your traits. So if you've got five traits, you roll five dice. If any of those, if any of those dice roll a six, then you have succeeded in that test. Now, some of your traits might give you a bonus. So let's say, I don't know, let's say you are in a cave and there's a rock fall and, it, and there's a big rock blocking your entrance. If one of your traits is strong, for example, and, and you still have these five traits I'm talking about, if one of your traits is strong, you would get an extra dice if you were trying to move that stone out of the way. So instead of rolling five dice, you'd roll another dice, making six dice for your for your roll. And if you roll a six on that, on any of those, that's a success. So as you can see, the more dice you have available, the, the more likely your chances of succeeding. Now, when it comes to combat, you are rolling your, it, it's, it's a test like any other kind of, you're rolling your traits or you're rolling the amount of dice equal to your traits. But if you have a trait that is relevant to combat, so let's say for example, strong, so, if, that, if you have five dice and one of those traits is strong, you roll an extra dice, so that's six dice. If you have a weapon and you're in combat, you get a die especially for that weapon. Now, the dangerous thing with using weapons is you have a chance of breaking them. Anytime you roll a one, if you're in combat and your weapon die rolls a one, and I should say it's obviously very useful to distinguish what your weapon die is. So for example, here I've got white dice and my weapon die is distinguished by a black dice with, with green numbers on it. So I know it's the weapon dice. So when you roll those all together, you know which one's your weapon dice. If you roll a one, your weapon breaks because this is the stone age. It's not, you know, it's not a, a fantasy setting when you can go to ye olde equipment store and you know, say, my good man, give me your finest broadsword and you, you hand them a pouch of gold pieces. You know, everything's made from, um, stone, um, wood, animal bones, and, and they can break. Now, if you, if, you, if you are in combat and your weapon die rolls a six, that means it triggers the effect. And the effect of a weapon die can mean that it, cause, it causes extra wounds. It, it causes something that makes your opponent be, um, be compromised or suffer penalties for the rest of the combat encounter. On the subject of weapons breaking, I, when I first read the rules, I thought, that, you know, that's really good. That makes a lot of sense. I really, I really, it really kind of resonated with me. But you'd be amazed how many times you can roll a one if, you're, if, your dice can, if your dice are as unlucky as mine. And I'm sure if you're playing a game and you keep getting ones, that's going to be a bit frustrating. Even though the rules do say you can repair your weapons, I'm pretty sure there's only, only so many times you can repair a, a, a bone knife before it's like the size of a toothpick. So I was thinking maybe when I get into this, maybe, although I'll still use the fact that when I roll a one on my weapon die, some, some damage occurs. Maybe if, 
it will only actually break completely if I get three in the same combat encounter or something like that. Otherwise, you you would be amazed how many times your weapon just, just turns to nothing, which in turn leads on to the fact you then have to fight a combat encounter with your bare hands. And even though the rules say that is possible to do, you know, you're, you're, you're still rolling on your traits. I'm not sure how believable that is if you're up against that saber-toothed tiger and you're and you're trying to you're trying to punch it i don't think that's going to happen that will not work very well so that's that so as as mentioned your trait you have a varying number of traits um there is a way to um to randomize how many traits you get but let's just say for example i have four traits i can uh, roll my traits on two tables so I could get something, so my traits, for example, let's say if I'm rolling on rolling for four traits, I get agile, brave, uh, strong, and wise. So they, you know, they, they carry their own benefits, not beyond each one representing a die roll when you're being tested, or you have to do something or, or you're in combat, that they confer extra things. So for example, agile is the ability to leap, balance, climb, tumble, and dance. So let's say my character, if they had four traits, had that agile trait, and they had to jump over something, not only would they get four dice to roll for their traits, they would get one extra for agile, so they'd get five dice to roll. So you see how it works. If you lose one of your traits, so say you get hurt in some way, yeah, let's say, let's say you, you, you try to jump and you fall and you hurt yourself, you would then lose a trait. Now, I think it says in the rules you, you can choose which one, or. When I do it, I think I, I will try to randomize it. So let's say those four traits I just mentioned go down to three. So right away, you can see the next time I want to do something, I'm only rolling three dice until I get better. However, if I still have my agile trait, let's say, and I want to do another jump or similar test, I will get a bonus for having the agile trait if you follow me. Okay, now talents, are kind of like your character classes. And there are, there are six different talent groups. There's Adept, Bestial, Fighter, Oracle, Sorcerer, and Specialist. So each of those groups kind of uh, cascades into, into more, specific, uh, more specifics. So let's say, for example, I'm rolling on the, the Fighter talent group. One of those could be um, a Barbarian. So let's say, I, as well as having those four traits, my talent, in small lettering my character class but you know not really I'm just trying to frame it in a way that others might be able to understand me it gives a really nice description of what a what a barbarian is it gives some nice color text to it and then it tells you in, in game terms what that means it says a character with this talent is deemed to have barbarian lineage they might be this might be evident from an early age or it might manifest later as the character gains experience the talent gives a character the ability to fight with a bloodthirsty power few can match. When using a melee weapon or melee weapon, if a barbarian hits, they will always cause an extra wound. This is in addition to the usual wound caused from the hit as well as any effect caused by the weapon. So if my character with four traits was fighting, he would roll the four dice, of course, and then plus one more because I think I gave him strong. I can't remember. Anyway, if, if they were to hit and they were using a weapon, if the weapon effect was triggered, so let's say it completely ripped open their, 
their arm and they were bleeding, which 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 causes its own penalties. It would cause that, and it would cause a wound from from any other six I might have rolled on another die, and then another wound just because I'm 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 a barbarian. Hopefully, I'm making sense. So, your talents can also cre um, confer extra abilities and extra advantages to you. Now. I just kind of, just then I gave a ham-fisted account of combat and what, what, a, what a weapon effect could be. Now there's a, there's a table underneath Barbarian for your starting goods and they're basically weapons. So if I roll a d6, it will, I, can, uh, I can randomly choose which weapon this Barbarian has. So let me roll. Five, I get a hand axe. So what does a hand axe do? I'm gonna, I'm gonna flip forward. Okay, axes. A hand axe causes pain. Now, I'm not going to flip to what pain means in combat, but if I was to roll in a combat encounter and I rolled six on the weapon die, it would cause pain. So I think that might be that the, the either there's an extra... Actually, you know, let's see. Okay, the, this is what pain causes your opponent in combat. The attack causes a sharp pain, momentarily distracting the foe. For the next action, the opponent cannot benefit from any traits normally applicable to an attack, such as brave or strong. So basically, you've kind of uh, kind of you've hamstrung them a bit. So they'd be fighting with one or less. Um, sorry, fighting with fighting with one less um, trait, or possibly two less. So that's what that's what a weapon effect can do. So to recap, your characters consist of talents and traits. The amount of traits you have determine the success by rolling a pool of d6s. Any six you roll is a success. And if you have certain traits um, that are applicable, that give you a certain advantage in certain situations, you roll an extra die for that trait. If you have a weapon uh, or a tool and you're fighting with it, if you roll a six on that weapon die, it triggers the effect, which can cause extra advantages to you and disadvantages to your opponent in combat but if you roll a one it can break although um i might i will alter that rule a bit because i i think having your weapon break all the time is, is kind of annoying anyway those are the basics of paleomythic it's a a d6 dice pool system nothing wrong with using d6s i know a lot of people really love polyhedral dice and i i kind of get that but d6s work for me so how on earth am I going to try and solo this? Okay, well, am I going to completely randomize everything? Well, I can randomize the character. I mean, I just kind of gave a scatty account of, of, of how you could roll up a character or what, what your character consists of. But the rules go into um, ways you can randomly determine how old your character is, even what name it has. You can completely randomize how many traits and how many talents. So, you know, that, that that's a good way of just completely doing stuff on your own because you're not picking and choosing your character's abilities. You know, you, you, you randomize it or I will randomize it and I get something I have to play with. Now, I'm not quite sure if I'm going to play with one character or two characters at the moment. A while ago, I did actually play a game of Paleomythic on my own. There's an adventure in the book, which is where you're kind of going through some caves to uh, rescue some people kidnapped from your village. And what I did was I did something very simple and very, very low-fi, low technology. I, I photocopied the map w without looking at it, I swear. I just kind of turned my head and I photocopied it using a photocopier. And then when I came home, I put the photocopy on my low, long table I've just been talking to you about. And I covered it with black playing cards to, so I couldn't see what was going on. I just kept the, um, the entrance caveway open 
And as I progressed through the cave along that photocopy map, I would take away the cards to reveal whether or not I was in a new room or a, a new um, corridor. And then I would read the description and the encounter and the hazards there. And I, you know, I was I was very honest with things. You know, I think I, I the first the first encounter I ended up being in some in in the sewage pit. I had to fight some rats. And then another while later, I fell into a uh, into a lake. And one of my characters got attacked by the fish that was living there. And the other the other character tried to pull them out, and it didn't work because they failed the test. You know, and and it was possible, but it was helped greatly by the fact there was something you know kind of pre-prepared, and I because I hadn't read through the adventure when I got the book, I didn't know what to expect. So that kind of uh, added to the enjoyment for me. So when I when I when I attempt this solo adventure, you know, what am I going to do? Well, I'll be honest from the outset, I don't really know. You know, this whole my my take on trying to solo a role-playing game might fall flat on its face. But what I have done, I have drawn a kind of simple uh, sketch map of an area around this prehistoric village. So the village is where the character or characters originate from, and it's where their adventures will stem from. And, you know, just using a pencil, some colored pens, you know, it, it was relaxing to draw this, I have to say. The village is in the meander of a river. It's right at the bottom of the page. So I'm going to say the bottom of the page is south. Whatever is whatever is further south of that village i don't know that's that's for another time another adventure we'll see there's a trail that goes away from the village it goes to a crossroads where the crossroads go south off the page uh east off the page and over a river crossing on the other side of the river there's just a load of trees that i've sketched and i've called it the spirit wood after that it's blank somewhere in the middle of that blank patch of the page i've put a burial mound and at the far end, I've put mountains. So my logic being, if you were standing on the palisade of the village, you'd see, you would see and know that there's a huge forest in front of you to the north. You would see the mountains. You might see the burial mound, but you wouldn't have a clue what was in there. So that's kind of the main thing that will inform this attempt. I'm going to set out from the village over the river. Well, you know, even before I get there, I might have an encounter at the crossroads. I mean, I, I need to figure out how I do that. You know, is it going to be a combat encounter? Is it going to be some kind of a trader or some old wise woman who who tells our fortunes? How am I going to how am I going to do that? But even there, you know, these things might happen at these places, and I have to kind of do it as a solo role player. But be honest with it, you know, just be a bit subtle. It's what I don't want this to be is some weird solo improvised drama situation. You know, I, I, I need, I don't want it to be that at all. I don't want it to be this weird experience. I want it to be role-playing. I want, I want dice to be clattering on my dice tray. I want there to be, you know, exciting encounters, but because I'm doing it on my own, because there's no game master sitting opposite me, I got to do it all on my own. So, you know, these things might happen at the trail. They, they, they might have these encounters. There's a river ford to crossing. May, maybe that's just a hazard. Maybe the, maybe although it's a ford, it's been raining the night before, you know, that there, there are some weather and um, weather charts or tables in, in in the rule book maybe there's some kind of creature waiting for me in the river you know when i get to the forest maybe something will attack me as soon as i step in but then you know how do i how do i make my way through the forest am i able to um navigate easily is you know can i can i use the sun to try and go north and and, and before before we even get to all this why am i going into the forest maybe i've heard rumor that there is some I don't know, mysterious cave that has an amazing weapon in there, an amazing weapon that doesn't break. 
or maybe some uh, hunters were attacked a few days ago by by a tribe who've come in from another area and we've got to clear the place out you know maybe we've got to go into this this wood that we don't know much about and um, clear out these these um this new tribe and along the way we might end up in the burial mound we might discover there's a huge lake in the middle of the of the forest that uh, even the hunters haven't been to you know i'm i'm just as i'm talking to you now i'm just getting these ideas out and i'm trying to figure out that's what i'm going to do okay i have that empty map and that is where i'm going to stop for now because i need to think more about this but i think i've got the bare bones of what could be a faltering solo role-playing game experience I think between now and the next episode, because I can see by the by the time time count on the recorder, this is actually a lot longer than I thought it was going to be. That's that's quite interesting. Between now and the next time you hear me or the next podcast, I will put together one or two characters and I will have a better idea of the whys and wherefores of why I have to go into that forest and leave the village. So until next time, this is Tom from Two Shelves of Gaming saying thank you for listening and I will speak to you next time.